You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on the new life in Christ that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Now, here is John Stott on Today in the Word radio. So we turn to Ephesians again. We come today to our fourth study, and our text is chapter 4, verse 17, to chapter 5, verse 21. We began by considering the new life that God has given us in Christ, and secondly, the new society that God is creating through Christ. We went on yesterday morning to begin the new standards which God expects of his new society. And the first standard is that of unity, and the second, which is our topic today, is that of purity. The church, the new society, is not only one people, which is therefore called to manifest its unity, but it is also a holy people, a people called out of the world to belong distinctively to God, and therefore it must manifest its purity. A life that is worthy of God's call will be a life of purity as well as of unity. Paul opens the section, chapter 4, verse 17, with another assertion of his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord. That is, I tell you this and I insist upon it, in the Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus, whose apostle I am. He is giving again authoritative apostolic instruction. The gist of his message is quite clear in the second part of verse 17. This is what I insist on, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Oh, you were pagans in your pre-conversion days. And when you were pagans, you lived like pagans. But now you're Christians, so you must live like Christians. And you must no longer live as you used to do in your pagan pre-conversion days. Your new status as God's new society involves new standards. You are different. You must behave differently. Your new life must be seen in a new lifestyle. Now that's the theme that we're going to consider for the next 40 minutes. And I'd like to divide our text into three sections. One is the doctrinal basis of his exhortation to holiness. Just verses 17 to 24, the doctrinal basis. Two, the practical outworking of this principle. Verse 24, on to chapter 5, verse 4. Thirdly, the third section I'm going to call additional arguments for holiness. Chapter 5, verses 5 to 21. It's all a thrilling study. I pray that our hearts may burn within us as Christ opens to us the Scriptures. Firstly, then, the doctrinal basis, verses 17 to 24. It was essential 
Paul indicates, for these Ephesian readers to grasp the basic contrast between what they had been in their pre-conversion days and what they were now in Christ. What they had been is described in verses 17 to 19. End of verse 17. In the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. See the phrases futility, darkness, alienation, ignorance, hardness. First, hardness of heart, rebellion against God. Then the resulting darkness that comes to the mind. And then the deadness of soul because of their alienation from God in whom alone is life. And then uncleanness of behavior. It's the very same sequence that Paul elaborates at greater length in the last half of Romans chapter 1. Hardness, darkness, alienation, uncleanness, giving themselves up to a life of corrupt living. That's what they were. That's how he describes what they had been before Christ saved them. Then he contrasts that with what they have become in and through Jesus Christ. Verse 20 and 21, But as for you, you are different. You didn't so learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So over against the darkness and the ignorance of the heathen, you see, they'd learned something. They'd been taught something. They'd grasped a certain truth as it is in Jesus. What is this truth? If heathen ignorance led to reckless uncleanness, what is the truth that sets Christians free and makes them clean? Well, the next verses supply the answer, verses 22 and 24 to 24. It is the truth of the new birth, the truth of the new creation, that in Christ we become new people altogether and therefore are required to live a new life. Now, verses 22 to 24 are probably not fresh commands as they are where we read, put off your old nature, be renewed, put on your new nature. Probably they are not fresh commands like that. The parallel in the letter to the Colossians suggests something different and the Greek may equally well mean this. Namely, that instead of being fresh commands to the Ephesians to do something now, they are a statement of the truth as it is in Jesus, which they had learned when the gospel was taught them, and which they had received, and on which they had acted. What is that truth? What had they been taught? Well, they'd been taught to put off the old man, to put away their former manner of life entirely, to be renewed in the spirit of their mind. They had been taught to seek a daily renewal of their mind so that they cultivate increasingly the mind of Christ. And they'd been taught, verse 24, to put on the new man, the new self, the new humanity that had been created by God in righteousness. This is what they had been taught, 
and this is what they had done. And they must constantly call to mind what they'd been taught and what had happened to them. They'd put away the old humanity, put on the new humanity. They'd become new people in Christ. A new birth, a new creation is what they had experienced. Now that's the doctrinal basis, the emphasis upon the newness that we experience when we come to Christ. Now we move on secondly to the practical outworking of this from verse 25 on. Verse 25, therefore, note that therefore, therefore, because you have become a new person in Christ, you must behave in a new way, with new standards altogether. You must be what you are. Therefore, put away everything that belonged to your old life. You did put off your old self, your former manner of life. Now put off and put away everything that belongs to it. The metaphor, this putting off and putting on, is taken, of course, from dressing and undressing in the morning and the evening. And the kind of clothing we put on depends on the kind of role that we are fulfilling. For example, when we go to a wedding, we put on our wedding clothing, clothing suitable for a wedding. Ladies put on their new bonnet or hat or chapeau or whatever it is. And men put on all their wedding finery too, their glad rags, as we sometimes call them. Ah, but when you go to a funeral, you wear a different kind of clothing. Of course, I realize some young people wear blue jeans all the time, whether it's a wedding or a funeral or MBI or whatever it is. But most people dress differently according to the occasion. <laughs> now, dress is determined also by our job or our profession. Soldiers, sailors, airmen have different uniforms. Lawyers have special dress. Some clergymen dress in a funny way. <laughs> so do prisoners and convicts. See, our role is matched by our dress. Ah, oh, but when we change our role, we change our dress. When a prisoner leaves prison and is a free man again, he puts off his prison uniform and he dresses like an ordinary citizen again. When a soldier becomes a civilian, he gets out of his uniform into what we sometimes call civvies, civilian dress. Now, that's the metaphor. And Paul says, since in the new birth, you did put off your old humanity, and you did put on a new humanity, and you became a new person. Now you must put away the old standards that belong to the old life and put on the new standards that belong to the new life. A new role as Christians means new clothing. A new life involves a new lifestyle. That's what the putting off and the putting on implies. Now he gives six concrete examples. A, verse 25. Don't tell lies, but tell the truth. Lies belong to the old life. Truth belongs to the new life. It's not enough to stop telling lies. We've got to love the truth and speak it. Christians ought to be known in the community as honest, reliable people whose word can always be trusted. And the reason given in this verse 25 is because the other person is our neighbor. 
and in the church's relation is closer still we're members one of another we belong to each other in the body of Christ so the fact is that fellowship is built on trust and trust is built on truth so falsehood undermines fellowship as trust builds it B verses 26-27 don't lose your temper but rather be sure that your anger is righteous verse 26 begins with a positive be angry yes there is such a thing as Christian anger there is such a thing as divine anger and there is such a thing as anger in the people of God Scripture tells us that there are two kinds of anger, righteous and unrighteous. And I venture to say there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We compromise with sin and evil in a way in which God never does. And in the face of blatant evil, in the community, we should be indignant and not tolerant. We should be angry and not indifferent. If God hates sin, and he does, his people should hate it as well. There is a place for this righteous Christian anger whenever God is dishonored in the community. Ah, but having said that, we need to qualify it. We have to remember that we're fallen creatures. We're always prone to intemperance and to vanity. So we should always be on our guard when we're getting angry and we should check our anger. Three qualifications Paul gives. Be angry, but don't sin. Make sure, in other words, that your anger is free of spite and of pride and of malice and animosity and revenge and there's no element in it which tarnishes it. Next, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. That is, don't nurse your anger. And if at any time you sense that your anger is developing some sinful element, then cease from it and apologize or forgive and don't let the sun go down upon it. And three, don't give any chance to the devil because the devil is always ready to exploit any situation of anger that's B the second example C verse 28 don't steal but rather work and give do not steal is the eighth of the ten commandments but here the apostle goes beyond the prohibition and draws out the positive counterpart. It's not sufficient for a thief to stop stealing. He's got to start working. Working with his own hands, working hard, working honestly, working gainfully. And then he'll be able to support himself and his family. And he will have something over that he can give to people in need. And then instead of sponging on the community, which is what thieves do, he'll start contributing to the community. And there's only one person who can turn a burglar into a benefactor, 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. D, the fourth example, verses 29-30, don't use your mouth for evil, but rather use it for good. The apostle moves, you see, from our hands, working with our hands, to the use of our mouths. Speech is a wonderful gift of God. Speech is one of many human capacities which distinguish human beings from the animal creation. Cows can moo, dogs can bark, donkeys can bray, pigs can grunt, birds can sing, but only human beings can speak. And speech is a highly sophisticated method of communication that is unique among human beings. So, Paul says, let's use our gift constructively, not for evil, whether that be dishonest, vulgar, or unkind talk, which in some way hurts the listener, but let's use it for good, to benefit those who listen, not to harm them, but to help them, to impart grace to those who hear. James, the apostle, reminds us, of course, what immense power the tongue has for good or evil. And instead of hurting people with our words, let's use our words to help them, encourage them, instruct them, cheer them on their way. I like your American habit. You say so often to one another, have a good day. That's a good way to use your mouth. Have a good day. Send people on their way with a word of cheer and encouragement. I like a verse in the book of Proverbs, chapter 12, verse 18, that says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. That's good, isn't it? There are some people, you know, whose tongue is like a sword, cutting, sarcastic, rude, unkind, negative. I've said words like that and wanted to bite my tongue off when I've said it and wished I'd never said it. Cutting words. There is one whose words are like sword thrusts. Ah, oh, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. God grant we may use our tongue for healing people and not for hurting them. Then verse 30 is a little parenthesis. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's not quite clear why Paul adds this phrase here. Although there is no doubt that what grieves the Holy Spirit is anything that is inconsistent with his nature. Since he can be grieved, he is, of course, a person. You can't grieve a thing. You can only grieve people and make them sad and sorrowful. So the Holy Spirit is a person and a very sensitive person, and he's easily hurt or grieved. And because he's a Holy Spirit, he's grieved by unholiness. Because he is the one Spirit, he is grieved by disunity. Because he's the Spirit of truth, he is grieved by falsehood. Anything inconsistent with his nature grieves him. So don't grieve him, Paul says. He dwells within you, he has sealed you, God has sealed you, branded you as his own by putting the Holy Spirit within you. 
And until the day of redemption, you've been sealed. Note those two phrases. The sealing begins, <clears throat> belongs to the beginning of the Christian life, when God puts the Spirit within us and so seals or marks us as his own. The day of redemption is the end of the Christian life, when our very bodies are going to be redeemed and are going to be resurrected and changed and glorified. And in between the sealing and the redemption, between the beginning and the end of the Christian life, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Grow in holiness, bring him pleasure instead of pain. E, the next example, verse 31 to chapter 5, verse 2, don't be unkind or bitter, but rather be kind and loving. And here is a whole series of six unpleasant things that are to be put away from us entirely. From verse 31, put away bitterness. There is a sour spirit and sour speech. Some people grow sour. Terribly tragic to see a human being who has become sour. We sometimes talk about a sour puss. And I guess there are sour toms as well. Bitterness, put it away. Wrath. That's passion or rage, the wrong kind of anger. And then anger, which is a more settled hostility to people. Clamor, which is getting excited and raising your voice and shouting in an argument. Slander, which is tittle-tattle behind people's backs. And malice, which is ill-will, wishing and even plotting evil against people. All these things, Paul says, must be put away entirely. They belong to the old life. You've left all that kind of thing behind long ago. And in the place of those things, he says, be kind, wishing people well, tender-hearted or compassionate, forgiving one another. The Greek means acting in grace towards one another as God has acted in grace towards us. And therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God. Copy God. God is gracious, so his people must be gracious too. Loving the undeserving, as he've done. Be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Such self-giving love is pleasing to God. It's a fragrant offering. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 2. Nothing is so fragrant to God as love no offering pleases him better than the offering of ourselves to one another in loving, sacrificial service. F, the last example. Chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Don't joke about sex, but rather give thanks for it. Very important little paragraph here about sexual behavior and practice. Paul turns, you see, from love, giving ourselves in sacrifice, sacrificial love, he turns from love to lust, which is the perversion of love. And in verse 3, he mentions immorality, impurity, and covetousness, because sexual lust is an especially degrading form of covetousness, it is coveting somebody else's body 
for our own purely personal and selfish gratification. Now Paul says, let those things not even be named among you. That is, we're not only to avoid the indulgence of these passions, we're also to avoid talking about them. And verse 4 goes beyond immorality to vulgarity, because filthiness means obscenity, and silly talk or levity is coarse jesting. And all three refer to a dirty mind that expresses itself in dirty conversation. Instead, end of verse 4, very striking contrast, instead let there be thanksgiving. Don't you think the contrast is rather beautiful? Surely he is continuing to think about sexual behavior. And it is in that context, he says, let there be thanksgiving. The reason Christians dislike vulgarity and immorality is not because we have a warped view of sex and are either ashamed of it or afraid of it, but because we have a high and holy view of it as a good gift of God and we don't want to see it cheapened or trivialized or degraded. All God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving and not for joking. To joke about them is sure to degrade them. To give thanks for them is to preserve their nobility as gifts of a good creator. Now notice a word that occurs twice in connection with the saints or the new society. End of verse 3, we're to avoid immorality as is fitting among saints. Middle of verse 4, vulgarity and obscenity are not fitting. Now, as a matter of fact, the Greek words are different, although the English words are rightly the same because they do mean the same thing. Let's concentrate on this a moment because it's very important. The saints are God's people, all God's people, the new society. And because God's people are a distinct people, they have distinct standards. Certain things are fitting or appropriate because of who they are. Certain things are not fitting or inappropriate because of who they are. So the principle is the same throughout the chapter, that what we are must determine how we behave. Our conduct must fit our character must be appropriate to who we are as the people of God. So far, then, we've looked at the doctrinal basis and the practical outworking with its six concrete examples. Now we come to our third section that I've called Additional Arguments for Righteousness. Chapter 5, verses 5 to 21. A. The first additional argument concerns the certainty of judgment. Verses 5 to 7 introduce this solemn note of judgment. Verse 5, be sure of this, it's very emphatic, that nobody who is immoral or impure or covetous, again in the immoral sense, coveting other people's bodies for selfish gratification, whose lust is an idolatry, because he or she has become obsessed with it, no such person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God or of Christ. 
Now let's be clear that Paul is not here excluding from heaven somebody who may, in a moment of extreme temptation, fall into immorality and has then repented and been forgiven and restored. He is referring to those whose lives are given up to immorality in a way that immorality has become an idolatry to them and they are obsessed with this kind of thing. So many people seem to be like that today. Now, Paul says, such people who are impenitent and wicked and idolatrous and covetous in their immorality, such have no place in the kingdom of God and of Christ, because God's kingdom is a righteous kingdom. Verse 6, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Some people teach that everybody goes to heaven in the end, irrespective of their behavior. They are deceiving us with empty words. Universalism, that is universal salvation in the end, is a lie. The truth is that because of these evil things, the wrath of God comes upon the disobedient. And therefore, verse 7, because God's kingdom is a righteous kingdom and his wrath and judgment fall upon the disobedient, don't associate with them. New International Version, don't be partners with them. That is, don't get involved in their practices. A warning you see about judgment. Two, the second additional argument concerns the fruit of light. Verses 8 to 14. And as our time is going, I'm afraid there isn't really an opportunity to enlarge on this. It's simply an argument derived from the fact that if we're Christians, we have left the sphere of darkness and entered the sphere of light. We are light in the Lord. God is light and his people are living in the sphere of light and Christ is the light of the world and so we are to live as the children of light and to do everything in this transparent openness of light instead of hiding away in the darkness where nobody's watching and we can do things in the darkness we would never do in the light. So live in the light. You are the children of light. And live a transparent, open life in the light. That's the second argument. C, verses 15 to 17, concerns the nature of wisdom. Verse 15, Paul assumes that Christians are wise men and not fools. He says, look carefully how you walk, how you behave, not like unwise men, but like wise people, because he implies that's what you are. Christian wisdom, moreover, is practical wisdom. It tells us how to behave. So look carefully how you walk. Look carefully. We all do that when it's snowing. We all, when we go outside, you know, we watch very carefully our footsteps, especially if it's freezing and there's a little surface of ice. So we tread gingerly like Agag. Look carefully how you walk. And it's the same in the Christian life. Everything that's worth doing requires care. We all take trouble over the things that seem to us to matter. So Christians take trouble over their Christian life. We must treat it as a serious thing it is. New English Bible, be most careful then how you conduct yourselves. 
Now, what are the marks of a wise man who takes trouble over his Christian behavior? Two things. One, the wise man makes the most of his time. Verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. If we're wise, we know that time is a very precious commodity. Time is passing. The days are evil. And once the opportunity has passed, it's lost, and it can never be recovered, even by the wisest among us. So seize it, Paul says, the fleeting opportunity while it is there. Redeeming the time, seizing the opportunity, because when it's past, it's gone. First mark of a wise Christian is his disciplined use of time. And the second is the wise Christian discerns the will of God. Verse 17. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's where wisdom is to be found. Wisdom is in the will of God. Discover the will of God. You'll find his general will in Scripture. You'll find his particular will rather more painfully. You'll need to study Scripture. You'll need to pray. You'll need to get advice. You'll need to watch the circumstances and ultimately make up your own mind with the mind of Christ that has been given you and using the rationality that is yours by creation as well as by redemption. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Nothing is more important than to discover God's will and do it. There lies wisdom. Folly is in disobeying God's will. Now D, the fourth and last argument for holiness on which we spend a few more minutes concerns the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, grammatically speaking, the remaining paragraph we look at, 18 to 21, consists of two imperatives, don't get drunk, but do get filled with the Spirit, followed by four present participles, speaking to one another, singing, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. That's the grammar. Theologically, the first is our Christian duty and privilege to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the second is the consequences of this fullness in our relationships with God and with one another. So you see, Paul draws a certain comparison between drunkenness and the fullness of the Spirit. Because a drunk is under the influence, as we sometimes say, of alcohol. And a spirit-filled Christian is under the influence or under the control or under the power of the Holy Spirit. But having seen that, there the comparison ends. And it is a great mistake to imagine that to be filled with the Spirit is a kind of spiritual intoxication or inebriation in which a human being loses control of himself. On the contrary, if we learn to compare Scripture with Scripture, as we always must, then we will recall that the ninth of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So the result of being filled with the Spirit, far from being the loss of self-control, is the acquisition of self-control. And incidentally, the people on the day of Pentecost who thought the apostles and others were drunk was only a small minority. 
Luke says that most of the people listening were simply astonished and amazed because they heard these Christians singing and praising the mighty works of God in languages which they could understand. They were amazed. But others said, Luke adds, that is a small minority said, they're drunk. And as likely as not, they were mocking and ridiculing them rather than literally thinking that they were intoxicated. So there is a great difference between these two. The result of drunkenness is debauchery. People who get drunk give way to wild, dissolute and uncontrolled desires. They behave like animals, indeed worse than animals. Ah, but the result of the fullness of the Holy Spirit is quite different. If excessive alcohol dehumanizes us, turning human beings into animals and worse, the fullness of the Spirit humanizes us, makes us more human. What the Holy Spirit does is to make us like Jesus Christ. Nobody's ever been more human than Jesus Christ. He is the perfect human being. So alcohol dehumanizes, but the fullness of the Spirit humanizes, makes us like Christ. And then Paul concludes with these consequences of the fullness of the Spirit. The first is fellowship, speaking to one another. Now, I know the King James says, speaking to yourselves, but that doesn't mean that the first sign of being filled with the Spirit is you start talking to yourself. No, the Greek could equally well mean talking to one another. And when it says addressing one another in hymns and songs, it doesn't mean that when you're filled with the Spirit, you stop talking to one another and start singing to one another instead. No, the reference to hymns and psalms and spiritual songs makes it clear that the reference is to a worship service, a service when Christians come together to sing hymns and psalms and songs. And when we do so, some of the songs we sing are not addressed to God but to one another. I'm an Episcopalian, as I think you know, and one of the psalms we love to sing on Sunday mornings is called the Venite, Psalm 95. And in that psalm, we don't address God once. We're talking to one another. We say, oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of God, our Creator, and so on. And it's all, let us do this in one, to one another. So what we really should do when we're singing the Venite is turn to our next-door neighbor, although you know an Episcopalian would never do anything as undignified as this, and we should slap one another on the back and say, now come along, let us sing unto the Lord. See, it's addressing one another in a psalm. It's fellowship, it's exhorting one another to the worship of God. And then the second mark after fellowship is worship, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Here we're addressing the Lord rather than one another. J.B. Phillips may be right that it's making music in your hearts for the ears of the Lord, an instruction which unmusical people have always found very comforting if they're unable to sing in tune, because the ear of the Lord can pick up the melody and the singing in their heart to the Lord, worship. Thirdly, thankfulness, verse 20, giving thanks for all things. The grumbling spirit is incompatible with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
Grumbling was the besetting sin of Israel. They're always moaning and groaning. Spirit-filled believers are full of thanksgiving instead of grumbling. Giving thanks at all times for all circumstances. No, not for absolutely everything. You can't thank God for evil. It's absurd to think you can thank God for what God hates. We can't thank God for those things. We're to thank God for all things which are compatible with his nature as our Father as it is revealed in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, giving thanks to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. For everything consistent with his nature and purpose, we can thank him. And fourth and lastly, submissiveness. 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Sometimes a person claiming to be filled with the Spirit becomes aggressive and awkward and self-assertive and brash. But, beloved, those who are truly filled with the Holy Spirit exhibit the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And there is a beautiful mutual submissiveness about a Spirit-filled Christian community. So how beautiful, then, are these consequences of being filled with the Spirit. And be filled with the Spirit is a command, and it is a present imperative, go on being filled. As the New English Bible puts it, let the Holy Spirit fill you. Open your personality to him each day in penitence and faith, and ask him to fill you with himself. Now, my time is up, and I have only just one minute in which I want to conclude. Please try to think with me in this last important minute. Looking back over the passage that we've been looking at yesterday and today, there are two words that stand out. One is in chapter 4, verse 1, I beg you to live a life that is worthy of God's call. The other is in chapter 5, verse 13, to avoid impurity as is fitting among the saints. Our Christian life has to be worthy of what God has called us to be. Our Christian life has to be fitting or appropriate to what we are as saints. So let nobody say that doctrine doesn't matter. Doctrine is at the very foundation of our ethical conduct. We have to know what we are as the new society that God has created through Christ and then we shall want to live a life that is worthy of it and fitting to it. May God enable us to do even that for the glory of his name. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once more for the new society that you are bringing into being in the world. Help us to live a life that is worthy of your call. Help us to live a life that is fitting to what you have made us. We ask it for the glory of your great name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message on the new life in Christ that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.